Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Robert Baharian and this is Masters in Investing. They say life never stops teaching and we never stop learning. This show is my exploration with investors to both understand and unpack what is going on in markets right now and what this means for business and for investors. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us an awesome review. Let's get into it. My guest today was Slava Platkov, portfolio manager for the $800 billion money manager that no one's ever heard of, Dimensional Fund Advisors. The reason I brought Slava back onto the podcast was because when we spoke uh, during 2020, so much has changed since then. During our conversation, we talk about uh, the value spring uh, bouncing and not breaking. We talk about the GameStop saga and how a systematic approach allows investors and also Dimensional to profit from such behavior in, in the market. We also talk about whether or not the classic bond stock uh, combination is as powerful as it used to be. I really enjoy speaking with Slava. I, he has this uncanny uh, way of being able to distill such complexity both in financial markets and investing into something uh, so simple. I had so many more questions for Slava, but this is all I've got for now. I really hope you enjoy it. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management, AFSL 526798. The information contained in this podcast may include general advice and does not consider your particular circumstances. You should seek advice from a registered financial advisor who can consider if the general advice is right for you. Slava Platkov, uh, welcome back to Masters in Investing. Yeah, thank you, Rob. Good to be here and good to be here in person. Excellent. Uh, you've got your coffee. Got my coffee. Hopefully you're uh, ready to go. Ready to go. Excellent. Um, it's good to see you back in per- Well, good to see you in person. Last time we spoke, it was, um, it was via Zoom. Uh, and in fact, it was back in October last year. I was listening, listening to the podcast uh, last night in preparation for for today. And there's so many interesting things that I just want to go back to and maybe progress that conversation just in light of what's been happening since then. But there's a few things that have also evolved uh, since then, which I, which I just want to touch on as well, yeah. um, if that's okay with you. The ETF revolution has been going on for some time now and if this is something you can't talk about just let me know sure but dimensional resisted that for many many years and the pitch certainly from an advisor's perspective was that somewhat exclusivity of, of access to your strategies and and so forth and i know that there's a number of advisors and in the u.s as well that use that as a um, bit of a picture of marketing to their clients say we've got access to a whole bunch of things that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to access. Now, I, I think you guys launched three or four ETFs over in, in the US and I think that was for four weeks you raised in excess of $1 billion in four weeks. That's right, yeah. Uh, insane. Uh, and I, from what I understand also is that you're converting close to $30 billion of managed funds to ETFs as well. Mutual funds, yeah. Yeah, mutual funds to ETFs. Can you just give us a bit of understanding or maybe some insight as to why you're sort of 
gave in almost to that that revolution yeah. and what that then means for the concept of access, especially a lot of advisors in the US who are pitching that for their clients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we don't really think about it as like the distribution model and the fact that we work so closely with the advisor, the onboarding, you know, the conferences and all that stuff, that was just mostly around making sure that um, – there is an enormous amount of alignment in terms of how the advisor invests and, and the products that we provide for that advisor to invest their clients' money into. Um, what we're also really cognizant about is just giving advisor access to our products in the best and the cheapest and the most scalable way possible. And that's what ETFs was all about. So it's not, we don't think just because we're launching ETFs now and all of a sudden anyone can go out and buy this stock. We don't think all of a sudden, you know, those ETFs are gonna be held 80 90 percent by just people who are trying to pump value for example yes that's not what we expect we still expect those same advisors that they don't need to be accredited now sure to buy the stock but we still expect those same advisors accredited advisors that we have been working with for a very long time who understand not only now understand what our products have on offer but also understand the pros and cons of investing in the etf which which is something that we're going to start educating people on as well so that it's still going to be those ETFs we expect them to be very much held, majority, you know, to the vast extent held by advisors or on behalf of their clients who know exactly what dimensional to, who have been accredited, who have gone through that onboarding process. And those advisors that are already investing with you and believe in your strategies, you are of the view that they're going to keep working with you to understand what is going on, again, for the benefit of their clients. Exactly. That's, so that's not going to change. Exactly. That's what it's all about. It's about giving those our clients access a different way to access our product. If, if they want to do it, Great. That's what. And, and what about? And one of the things that I know Dimensional have been extraordinarily good at is being able to. And this is a business perspective, right? Being able to maintain fund flow. So from any, any money manager, fund flow is yeah. is important because that that makes or breaks your business, right? And Dimensional have been uh, able to maintain a really uh, organic trajectory yeah. uh, up. There's no big wild swings. With with the with the ETFs that are coming on the market now, do do does Dimensional feel as though there may be you know you sort of might ruin that nice uptrend with yeah. the ability for anyone and everyone just to jump in, jump out, and they're, they're the investors that you don't want. Yeah, they're the clients that in my advisory firm we don't have because they're not in and out, right? And and they're very long term investors as well, so we don't want those clients either um is that a consideration that that dimensional uh, have looked at look i'm sure as you know sort of you know the i'm sure people at the right levels are thinking about that yeah um, but i think again the key is that our expectation at this point in time from a business perspective is that the vast majority of, the, of those etfs are going to be invested by advisors that we work in very closely with. right the same advisors that are investing in our trusts or mutual funds yeah. in the us yeah um so it's just it's all about just giving them that 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 other avenue to access yeah. your portfolio well i look forward to those etfs yeah. coming and becoming available in australia well, those, i mean well australia it's it's a slightly different situation here we, we are very keen and we are thinking very hard about launching etfs here as well in the us it was um i mean the the, the investment case for tax effectiveness is, is enormous in etfs why is that um, well because because uh, the 
They're rebalancing. So you buy a stock, which is your ETF. Underneath that, there's a lot of there's there's these parcels that are being traded of stocks, which is which is how you rebalance your portfolio. The exchange of those parcels of stocks, whether it's a accommodator redemption or, or accommodator application in shares, it's it's there's not it's not a tax event in the US. So you you you're actually you're actually it's an enormous it's a very tax effective strategy. In Australia, the rules are a little bit different. You don't get as much tax effectiveness in Australia as you do in the US. Mm. But um, but still, that that ease of access, um, it's it's still very important to our clients here. So we're exploring things for the Australian advisors as well. Yeah. When we spoke last time, we were talking about systematic investing. We were talking about what to look at when you invest in value stocks. We talked about uh, brand value. We were talking about intangibles yeah, at the time. And yeah. you, you gave... Um, you, get, you gave me a really good example of Disney and Mickey yeah, Mouse, yeah. And, and all, and that was that was awesome. Uh, we talked about a whole bunch of other things. Since then, um, the you know you've raised uh, over a billion dollars in, in ETFs. But the other thing that has happened since you and I spoke, uh, quote you said, every day I'm trying to move the move to the ideal state based on most recent information. Yep. For example, a stock's price. A stock's gone up in price, all of a sudden it's less attractive to me. I should consider selling it and reinvesting into something that's cheaper. Yep. What's unfolded since you and I have spoken has been this rotation from growth-orientated stocks uh, to value stocks. Yep. And the question I asked you was, has that value spring compressed so much that it's going to break? You, you, you disagreed with that. You were of the view that the spring was just going to um, going to bounce back even even quicker yeah. and stronger than uh, than ever, and it appears as though that's what's unfolded. You've got a yeah. big smile on your face yeah. now. You're pretty happy and pretty relaxed about <laughs> things. I, I, I'd suspect. Um, maybe just talk to us about uh, what's happened since you and I spoke yeah. with the shift from the big growth tech names to uh, almost this resurgence again in, in value stocks. Yeah, look, I. It has been a nice six months. I think. I think to start with, and I would have. I would have said this last time we spoke as well, Rob. Is uh, this premiums is not something that you can time consistently. When we spoke uh, back in October, I would have said something like, "Look, if you ask me now where the value growth spreads are versus ten years ago, if you ask me if the expected return is higher for value." I was, I was confident and happy to tell you, yes, I think the expected return is higher for value six months ago, right, than it was 10 years ago. Um, did I know that we're going to have as strong of a rebound over the next six months as, as we've had? No, I could not have predicted that and I would never have tried. Um, but, yeah, it is really nice. Um, and we've seen that previously when, particularly after periods where, you know, you do get that consistent divergence in performance, whether it's value outperforming or underperforming, mm. you do get that really sharp bounce back. And that's what we've seen. We've seen, um, you know, the, the last quarter of last year was incredibly strong. Um, I mean, there were days in October where we've had, um, like if you look at the two corners of the market, large growth versus small value. Yep. The dispersion in those was sort of, you know, double digit type return over one single day. Um, and, and to your point around, um, you know, what I do, the daily process that we carry out at Dimensional, my focus is to maintain focus of our portfolios on those characteristics. So if it's a portfolio that's, that's 
trying to deliver the value asset class to the investor, I want to make sure that that portfolio is exposed only to value security sure. every single day. The, the main thing about these bounce backs is, you know, it's great that they're happening, but it's also can you capture them in your portfolio? And that's really where I think Dimensionals, uh, you know, is superior to their peers. And that's really what we promise our investors and that's what they, um, they're happy to receive. And, and so, yeah, so the last six months, obviously, um, has been, you know, the, the, the performance of some of those more cyclical parts of the market, like the financials, the energy. Yeah. Parts of the market that have been beaten down for, for many many years, they've they've bounced back strongly. And you, our portfolio has captured that. And are you finding in your, especially in your small small value allocations, are you finding that you're now having to potentially, uh, when I say trade more, don't take it literally, yeah. but relatively speaking, to maybe this time last year, because you're out your. Um, Relative to where we were last year, are you finding that you're going to have you're having to now trade more because of a number of stocks that have really just skyrocketed since then? Yeah, it's it's a good question you ask. Uh, the, the short answer is not really. Okay. Um, because what we've seen is we've seen the entire cohort right of small value stocks go up in price relative to the market, outperform the market. Right. Right. We are already significantly overweight that cohort. When the entire cohort goes up. Right? We don't need to do anything. That's the beauty of designing the portfolios the way we design it. That's and why don't you have to do anything? Well, because it, what we're holding essentially is a market cap-based portfolio of small value securities, all securities with similar expected return. We're just holding them at a, at a, at a larger weight relative to their market weights, but equally, right? So when there's, when the whole cohort goes up, we just, we've just we got to make sure that we continue maintain the overweight of the entire one. <laughs> we don't actually need to do any trading. If... A few of those names right. up a lot more and they go into mid-cap, so they go into kind of the growth part of the market. That's when we've got to do the turnover. That's the beauty about um, splitting the market into these buckets or portfolios, if you like, of securities with similar expected returns and, and applying an overweight or an underweight versus what some of the other managers tend to do. They, they tend to be a lot more rigid and they do like a, a very scientific bottom-up optimization and they get an expected return number for every single security. And that that ends up and ends up leading you to a situation where you've got to incur a lot more turnover to maintain that portfolio where you should be. Whereas if you split the market, understand that everything's really noisy, the metrics that we use, the, the premiums, the markets are very volatile and be really make sure that those portfolios of stocks are diversified and maintain overweight so you don't have to do a huge amount of trading. So as that as that entire cohort rises, yeah. it's all relative, right? So your portfolio is rising with that uh, and unless individual stocks are going you got it. absolutely out of that realm... Which there always are, but as a, uh, in the scheme of things, that's not a lot of turnover. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think... So I've just got this chart here. Yeah. That's the growth to value mm. ratio. Yeah. Do you think we've got quite a bit to go? Obviously, we've peaked out here at the yeah. back end of last year and, and value is now outperforming yeah. growth stocks. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to do some forecasting here. This is not in your DNA, <laughs> no, Slava. I, no. I'm, I'm fully aware not of that. Of my <laughs> but do you think, like, how much room do you think this has to run? Uh, it, it, it looks well. I mean, if you just draw an average line through that chart from you know what is it like 1975 there, um, it, it seems as though it may have room to go a little bit further. But 
like I said, it's it's very difficult to time these things. What what what's happened, and this is something I think I alluded to when we spoke six months ago, Rob. What's happened as well is because that growth part of the market is so concentrated in very few really, really yeah. large securities, it doesn't take much for the value premium to come in to, to jump out really strongly if, uh, if that cohort of stocks just underperform a little bit, which is sort of what happened over the last quarter. Like you didn't have... That's right. You, they didn't perform that badly. Like I think the market return, global markets in Australian dollar quarter one, 2021, is like a return of about 6%. Mm. Right. If I had a look at Facebook, um, I think I think actually Tesla performed better. Um, I think Google Alphabet performed better than the market. The other three performed a little bit worse, but not terrible. Like it's not like minus twenty percent type returns we're seeing for Amazon and Microsoft. Uh, but because they're so large, and because they underperformed by maybe three, four, five percent over a quarter, that that just mathematically means that there's a strong value premium. Yeah. And and that if I had to forecast, that would be my only that would be the reason behind why I would say it has got a little bit longer to go. Because um, like I said, that you know, those stocks can underperform for us in, in a really small way for, for the value premium to be quite significant. Yeah, Facebook um, outperforming, yeah. Uh, Alphabet outperforming, um, and then you've got yeah, they're, they're the only two that out of, out of Netflix and, yeah. and, some, and Amazons that have been outperforming. So what you're saying is go long, small value from here on in. <laughs> well, um, hopefully it pays off. I mean, it certainly, our, like I said, you know, our portfolios really do benefit and, and it's great for our investors when, when sort of you've got the size and the value premium and the profitability. There's a lot more going on in the portfolio than just value. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Look, looking, looking at this, looking at this chart, technology beating industrials, yeah. and this is the number of days tech stocks have traded greater than two percent per day above industrials. Okay, okay, right. The no, la- number of days. Number of days. Two greater than two percent per day. Wow. The last time we saw this was back in nineteen ninety nine. Wow. That was the last yeah, time we saw yeah, that, yeah. and it's you can see nothing has happened since yeah. since we had the tech wreck. And so, to to the comments that you're making, yeah, yeah, yeah. that really speaks to it, right? Be interesting to see the other way around, like the when when industrials outperform tech for for you know a number of consecutive yeah. days. It'd be interesting the the kind of the, the bottom half of that chart. But yeah, like it's I mean twenty twenty um, in global markets was the worst year for value, um, and 2018, 2019s were pretty poor as well. If yeah. you look at if you look at that really poor decade from like twenty ten or even from the GFC to now and, and the value premium. Um, was kind of it was pretty bad the first seven years but when you're standing in 2018 you're still going yeah all right values underperform portfolios probably underperformed by half a percent one percent per annum it's not too bad the last three years leading into this pandemic were really really tough yeah particularly yeah and and obviously the pandemic started that was really that was um you know the world's going towards this towards working from home and, and so everyone started to really pile into this large cap growth companies. Yeah. And, and interestingly, as reporting seasons um, in, in the US, uh, even though these, a lot of these companies are reporting re- really well, they're getting hammered. Yeah. And obviously with, with Biden and CGT coming, uh, capital gains tax changes coming in, does, it doesn't help. Can we talk a little bit about the cohorts that you talked about yeah. and these stocks going from small cap to mid cap? Um, one, one of the things that uh, are... I, my belief is is that 
most people think, you know, dimensionals are very conservative, boring, if I can put it that way, money manager. And I beg to differ. Um, there was a company, and this is only one example, uh, there was a company that was making headlines all over the news, all over social media, and that company was GameStop. And without going into all detail yeah. about GameStop, um, I, I, I remember talking to a number of people uh, making reference to GameStop and that's not how you invest and, uh, and so on and so forth. I, I, to their surprise, mm. through uh, their dimensional holdings, there was allocation to GameStop. And I think at one point in time, Dimensional was the yeah. sixth largest shareholder of GameStop. Yeah. Can you just explain to us how you ended up buying GameStop? Yeah. What happened and when you exited yeah. why you exited? And I think that would be really insightful for our listeners to hear that anecdote. Well, yeah. anecdotes, but yeah. I think it's a real-life example. I think so as well because it's... Um It'll, it'll um, you know, showcase a lot of the things that Dimensional... It'll showcase how we invest. Sure. Right? So GameStop listed, I want to say, in like 2002. We didn't start buying the security in our portfolio until 2010. Um, we generally don't buy IPOs for about 12 months. We, yep. There's some good reasons. Why is that? that. Well, they, they, there's, there's really two main reasons. One, two main reasons. One is that there's some... Um, selection biases in terms of so how brokers how investment banks allocate pre-IPO shares they tend to there's some evidence that they tend to favour their best clients um, so you, you there's just not enough transparency for dimensional to get to get the allocations that we're after it's not a it's not a plain it's not a level playing field sure. like the, the stocks that these investment banks think are going to do really well coming out of the IPO they're going to they're going to try to favour their sure. best clients with that and vice versa so you're not you're not you're not in that game um, and also what we also, but the second reason as well is really important in that what we see studying IPOs is that um, there's a lot of uh, insider selling that takes place in the first sort of six to 12 months, which makes sense to us from an economic After listing. After listing. Because, you know, you if you list your business, Rob, and, and you know, it's not like you, we're going to let you go. We still need you to manage the business. But at the same time, part of the reasons why you're IPO is because you want to get paid, right? You've built this amazing right. business, right? So you get there's clauses in place in your contract where you can slowly divest and realise some of that profit over sort of six to twelve months. So we want we want to make sure that 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 pressure is out of the out of the price. We want the price to settle down. We want those stocks to be widely held and, and trading with liquidity before we start investing. That's And that's sort sure. of around 12 months. So that's kind of... That's and then do you think that there's an aspect, an element of um, man, man, lead managers, brokers, just pumping up the price on this thing? There is. Things? Well, there's, there's, there's an aspect that they get allocated pre-IPO and, and they, they, you know, for those IPOs that investment banks think the companies are high quality companies, those managers get a better allocation to those ones. So it's not, it's not, it's not a fair the first 12 months is basically not fair and not price transparent. Sure. As you know, price. And you is. just let that flatten out and then yeah. start making decisions yeah. or start looking at things from there. Correct. So you were saying 2000, you didn't start buying games up to yeah. 2010. 2010, uh, we started buying it because it's a small cap company. It was a small cap company. We've got our own eligibility criteria that we apply to our universe securities that we can invest in at Dimension. Um, so, you know, it, it popped up. It was large enough. It was liquid enough. It was widely held. The quality of financials were there. It was a, it was a good company for us to start buying. And, uh, and uh, the main, as you know, we've got a very large small cap business. Mm. Um, 
particularly out of our kind of head office in the US, and that they're the portfolios that started buying this company. So our small cap portfolios, our core portfolios that tend to overweight small caps, that started, that started buying GameStop. So we, you know, you spoke about us being the sixth largest shareholder. We built up a very large shareholding in GameStop from about 2010 to about 2017. So around that period. Um, from 2017, uh, the characteristics of GameStop were, um, it was small, it was still small, it was very expensive, so it was a growth company, and the profitability was, was pretty poor, mm. right? If you put those characteristics together, from from what we know about expected return at dimensional, that's a that's a that's a cohort of companies that we want to underweight and exclude right. from our portfolios. So from 2017 to 2019 to 2020, even we have been di- we have been slowly trimming our exposure to GameStop for those reasons because because the expected return was low, right? Um, obviously, that trimming um, takes time. It's gradual. It's sure. very much cognizant of how much it costs. To trim, so every day, you know, if GameStop has those characteristics, we would we would send some orders to the market for them to slowly uh, trim those positions in GameStop. So that's kind of where we were when this whole thing started in two thousand twenty. Um, and what was your allocation? I, I can't remember. I think we still had like maybe four percent of the company, four to five percent of the company, something like that. Yeah. And and the reason I'm saying it's such a good showcase of everything of how dimensional kind of approach these things is because again, very gradual. You know, we don't start piling into every single IPO. We wait for the company to be a proper company until we start investing, wait for it to meet all our internal eligibility criteria. We slowly build up a position because the characteristics are there. It's an exposure that we want to have in our portfolios. Um, The characteristics change to something that we expect to have a lower expected return. So we slowly, with, with very much um, being cognizant of costs, start divesting. We get to 2000, um, 21, which is yep. when this whole thing started. Um, you know, the, the stock goes bananas. Um, you know, it goes from like 11 bucks to, to you know, three, four hundred dollars per share. Yep. Um, it's obviously no longer eligible for our small cap portfolios, it's too large. So, we have to make a decision there. It is a momentum up security, which, which generally that means for us that we delay the decision to sell it. Because it's going up. Because generally it'll continue to go up. That's yep. what the evidence says. Um, so we have to take that into account. The characteristics um, from a valuation standpoint, it's even more expensive. So we didn't like it already when it was a small cap high. It was a growth small cap company. We like it even worse now because it's now a mid caps growth company. Um, so that was also, so there was there was a, an enormous amount of trade-offs that we had to make. But the most important thing that I wanted to communicate to you is that we we run a systematic process, right? We manage, you know, four or 500 portfolios globally and a lot of those portfolios would have some level of exposure to GameStop. We were able to get together as as, as an invest, you know, uh, there's, there's this amount of human oversight that we have in sure. So it's not automated. We're not like a, like some of those quants that direct orders straight to the market. There are, you know, we've got 150 people in portfolio management, some very experienced people. So we were able to get together at the you know at the end of January and say okay this is what's going on with GameStop bring it all to our investment committee bring have our CEO in there all our senior portfolio managers heads of portfolio management this is what's going on this is these are the characteristics of a company these are the trade offs let's make the right decision for all our portfolios collectively in the 
business. And, and that's when we decided to divest out of uh, GameStop. Completely? Completely. Um, divest or move from small cap to large cap? Look, did divest, I move? Divest. Divest. Yeah. Because even though it moved from small cap and it might, may have become yeah. a mid or large cap, it still didn't meet the other characteristics or was still exactly. low profit. It was lowly profitable or what, whatever the now, other metrics were. There was were. no portfolio that GameStop was a high expected return security. For. Yeah, got it. So yeah. just because it fell in that universe, it Correct. didn't meet the criteria to... Correct. Very importantly, very importantly, what we got together and, and, and realised is that it was, a, it was liquid enough for us to divest out of it. That was the real key, right? As you know, GameStop, for that, for that, that last week of January, it was trading with more liquidity than Apple. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. So it was a, it was actually an opportune time for us to get out of that position. In a, so you got out at the end of Jan? In a very cost-effective way. W- yes. When was the date of your zero exposure to GameStop? I can't. I can't recall. I think it was like a Thursday or a Friday of that last week of January. I think I think, uh, I think January. You sold at the top. Well, we sold. We, we didn't sell at the top. No, we sold. Twenty ninth of January. It was in the two hundreds, somewhere in the price. I don't know. I don't. I can't. I can't tell exactly. Not that I can disclose this information anyway. But but you know, it was it was a good decision. It was a good decision for the business. So you would have made a shitload of money. <laughs> <laughs> I just got a chart up here, man, and that, and that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. Ah, oh, but look, you've got you've got the chart going back all the way to two thousand three or whatever. Um, if you just zero in the last year or so. Um, Yes, even so. I mean, that, that's that's the end of January. That yeah. literal peak there, right? Yeah. So we we we, we didn't sell at the top, but we sold. We, we we got a good price. Yeah. But look, it's it's gone back up, right? So it's again, it's kind of how do you, what, what do you benchmark your your trade to, right? It certainly made money for the portfolio. It was the wrong exposure to have in the portfolios. There was there was a few other decisions on the other side, like liquidity, momentum, that we needed to take into account. All that we wait, we got together put all those things on paper, made the decision to, to get out of it, got out of it, sure. made money for the investors relative to the price that we built the position. Sure. Not, not relative to the price now because that's not yeah. how we think, right? Yeah. So it's- Do you know what's really interesting is it, with, with investing, um, you, Dimensional would have bought GameStop for a variety of reasons. Yeah. But the you selling out and its price and whether you made money or not, it looks like you did, the fact that you made money was not the reason why you went in it from the beginning. Oops. And so that's the interesting thing with what's going on in markets at the moment. There's so much, and I, I want to get to this later on, there's so much speculation and so much bullishness in, in the market at the moment that the reason why you bought something is yeah. not the reason why you made money. No, no, no. no. We, we bought something because it was the right exposure for the portfolio or it had a high expected return. Yeah. We started trimming the position in 2017 because it got a low expected return yep. or, or divesting. And it was going down all the way down until 2020. But the key is that there's this really valuable human oversight element, which which came in super handy, you know, when the pandemic hit this time last year, mm. uh, particularly in our fixed income portfolios. But it also comes very handy every so often when these type of situations come to the market where you've got a stock doing something a bit out of the ordinary for obviously reasons that are not fundamental and this ability to intervene with the systematic process, make a good decision for our investors, is really, really important. And that's 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 a big feature of how we uh, you know, manage money right dimension. Can we talk about um, investor sentiment and how investors are allocating money at the moment? Um, since 
So if I look at this investor asset allocation, yep. in the red line we've got stock allocation that is sitting close to 70% of investor money. This is US uh, yep. survey. Uh, in fact, it's probably the second highest since the late 90s back here yep. at, at around 75%. Cash holdings and exposure to bonds are probably at the lowest that we've seen again since then yeah. uh, as well. What's your take on investor allocation now obviously with interest rates being at zero people just don't want to hold cash and um, yields on bonds are just really low at the moment what's your take Slava on uh, where people are investing their money and how bullish people are on stocks at the moment we look we continue to receive strong flows across all our strategies bonds and stocks again because of that relationship we have have with our advisors um, because and, and because we we are a big advocate of the fact that stocks and bonds together is an incredibly powerful combination. Like people do not give that combination enough respect, in my opinion. Um, bonds, obviously, at this point in time, the expected return is much lower than it was five years ago, ten years ago. Absolutely, but bonds will protect your capital. So yes, you might not have that thirty percent of your portfolio in bonds because you're trying to eke out return out of it. But you want to still have it because equities are really expensive because you've earned 12, 13% per rent for the last 12 years from equity. Will they protect it when in January Q1, 30-year treasuries were down 20%? Yeah, but 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 equity markets gave you a 7% return in that one quarter. Sure. Right? So it, that, that is the powerful combination. You know, 12 months ago when the pandemic hit, equity markets fell 37% here in Australia from top to bottom. Bonds gave you a flat return. You can... Bonds are liquid. You can rebalance that and stick stick money in equities, thirty seven percent lower. That would have, as you know, with the returns we've had the last twelve months, that would have worked out. Really and did nice. you see rebalancing in your portfolios back in back in March? Absolutely. I mean, that was a that was a again. I mean, we took we say one in yeah. one once in a lifetime. They seem to happen more yeah. often now. But th- those opportunities, you see people actually taking action to rebalance their portfolios. Absolutely, absolutely. That and they're was, the ones that have made the money, right? That was pleasing to see, but it was very difficult for us to implement. Why? Well, because because bonds, particularly portfolios where your your fixed income allocation has some exposure to credit, as you know, the credit spreads blew out quite yeah. quite quickly. There wasn't a lot of liquidity in those markets, so we had to again that human oversight was really important for that period because our fixed income desk had to come together and really maneuver through what was a really really challenging trading environment in fixed income. Um, obviously, particularly those couple of days before the government came in and really yep. flooded flooded the markets yep. with liquidity. So. But what was really pleasing, Rob, again, to make this point, because it's an important one, is that the advisors that we work with, they, they were redeeming out of, out of bonds and, and allocating money into equities, which is exactly what you should be doing. And they, they were reaping, they have reaped enormous rewards for their clients all, you know, through the last sort of nine to 12 months. Yeah, absolutely. And if you if you look at fund flow, yeah, uh, US equity ETFs and mutual funds, I mean, that's outflow. Yeah. Uh, and you've had one of the largest uh, inflows in yeah. in decades and decades. I mean, yeah. If you if you look at that sort of on a on a trend line, like you were talking about before, yeah. we, we probably sort of bypass that, and we're we're back on track to where where we yeah. were before. But I'm I am pleased to hear that people are taking action and implementing. Uh, a rebalancing strategy because it is it is counterintuitive and it does feel like at the worst time you're buying stocks, but it, 
that's precisely when you should be buying if you are talking about expected returns. And I think the, di- the big difference between good investors and great investors is that the, the, the great investors see beyond what is going on. And, you know, when the good investor sees um, is, is fearful and sees further losses, I think the great investors yeah. sort of smile with greed and, and see expected returns going even higher and higher. Because the more markets go down, the longer and further they go down, yeah. the probability of them going up it gets higher and higher. You just don't know when. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that, that, is, that is a fact. Um, the timing of how quickly it's going to bounce back and when, that, that's something is difficult to forecast, but yeah, you're absolutely right. But, but what, what, what it also, um, and, and you're not giving yourself enough kudos, Rob, uh, what's also really important is, is good advice. And that's where good advisors are really, really important. I think... I think over, overwhelmingly, I think people, particularly people that have built some wealth, they need advice um, to to hold their hands through times like this. Uh, that discipline is super, super important. Strategic asset allocation, yeah. you know, how, particularly if you were allocating through that period, continue to add to your investment. Imagine how, how you would have been, you would be smiling right now, right, from E to E. But do, that, that value of advice is really important. Does Dimensional have any data around that, around... Um Investors working with advisors versus the investors that aren't working with advisors, and what expected what, what returns look like for for the two different cohorts. If you don't, we we, we I, I don't know. I haven't seen anything. Obviously, anecdotally, we know um, that you always hear those crazy stories about people just making really bad decisions and destroying their wealth. Mm. Um, and you always and we know from working with our advisors around. Mm the amount of conversation they, they would have had to have had with their clients throughout this pandemic mm. to make sure that they remain on course, disciplined. Like we've had, I can't tell you how many meetings I did in the month of March and April from just advisors saying, what do we tell our clients now? What do we do with asset allocation? Um, what, you know, how, what do we think about currency? Like just this really, not, not even investment question, it was more just, just practical. Mm. Like how do we go to our client and make sure that we can convince them to stay on course because we truly believe that that's what we should be doing. So, you know, so that, that's that's a really nice relationship. But again, the value of advice is, is very important. Do you think there's a lot of stupid money just flying around at the moment with a lot of money being made in Bitcoin? Um, you, you probably saw uh, uh, the artist Beeple in March, the yeah. first 5,000 days NFT sold for yeah. um, $69 million. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw his his response on Twitter when the the piece was sold. Do you know what his response on Twitter was? Like the artist himself, he tweeted, "Holy fuck!" <laughs> that was it. Yeah, he was he was obviously quite surprised himself, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Who, people are buying this stuff, right? And there are millions and billions of dollars being made in in cryptocurrency and that whole new realm at the moment and i think it's way too early to tell us to whether or not these are genuine markets or not but i guess my question is do you feel as though there's stupid money just flying around at the moment do i personally feel yeah absolutely yeah yeah do i think um it's kind of it's sustainable probably not um there's there's i mean look at the look at the property market in sydney as well i mean as well it's kind of like uh, I don't know. I don't know why all of a sudden, um, twelve months later, you feel like you can afford a property that's two million more dollars more expensive. Like, what's changed in your life to an extent where you can, where you feel confident enough to go and borrow that much more money and pay that much more money for a house? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that doesn't make sense to me. Just personally, nothing to do with that. Sure. Um, 
but yeah, the cryptocurrency stuff. I mean, that's that's a roller coaster, right? I don't I don't know too much about it to be honest. I, I just do you invest in it yourself? No, no, no. I'm not allowed to invest in anything. Well, not not what I want to to be honest. Uh, cryptocurrency, yeah, it's it's um it's, it's very foreign to me. Sure, it's okay. a currency that's quoted in dollars of another currency it's kind of that whole thing is a bit weird yeah i was working walking back home from the footy last night and i just overheard a couple of three guys um walking yeah. behind me talking about the property market yeah. and one of them said oh mate just had my property revalued um and the, and the other guy goes oh had, you know how to come in and he goes oh yeah pretty good came in 3.5 <laughs> and he said oh uh, he goes, I don't know what's changed that much, but he said, mate, would I pay three and a half for my own property? Shit, no. <laughs> and I just thought anecdotally that's th- – these, th- these are professional valuers coming in yeah. valuing these yeah. things and, you know, it's as good as the last valuation really. That's, that's all it is. And, and maybe there's a, there's a momentum factor in the, in the residential property market as well, I, possibly for a period of time, no different to stocks. But, yeah, it's market um, price, right? Demand supply. The reasons they're so high because someone's willing to pay for it. That's right. Yeah, it's a simple that's right. And then you've got underbidders from the property before that couldn't yeah. buy. They were 100K short. They'll go and buy this one. And it, it, it appears as though the market's pretty strong at the moment. Um, I, I don't know what's changed. No different to the equity market. Like, it's just demand supply, right? But yeah. yeah it's, um, it, is, it, it does seem very expensive. It does seem very expensive. Do you think this bull market can be killed? <laughs> we've been running since we've been running since two thousand and nine. I mean, yes, yeah, yeah. We, we we had a thirty five percent drop, and then we had a. I think it's since nineteen thirty six the greatest or the largest one year return at seventy six percent. But that's obviously taking into account the fact that you know we we fell thirty five percent in I think it was record record time. But if you then just draw a line from 2009 to where we are today, it's just this uptrend. And the amount of government intervention that's going on now, is there a risk, Slava, do you think, again, again, this is probably probably not a dimensional perspective but more Slava's perspective, do you think that there is a risk that investors um, no longer allow markets to just apply out and you've got so much government intervention that that is backstopping this? I think think there's um, what what I expect – this is slavery again, is for there to be um, more volatility or, or when there is a piece of news that is adverse, um, I expect markets to react much quicker and much and in a much more of a meaningful way, like the corrections to be much more significant. That's what I expect. And that's because just behaviourally people have made so much money. If, if I can sell and at 20% less than what it was yesterday, it's okay because I've still made 300%. So you're just gonna get this still demand supply, still market forces working, still that new information coming in the price very quickly, but but I just think there's scope for those swings to be more violent, if you mm. like. Mm. Um, it's almost of, gambling with the house money, right? You're so far ahead right. with, with casino money. Even if you lost a few hands and you pulled out, it doesn't matter because right. it's not your money. Yeah, it's even, it's even it's probably even more than house money because because there's more liquidity. And like with the house, uh, you know, if, as much as that guy that you overheard the conversation, as much as he's sitting on this this amazing amount of profit, it's still on paper. Like for he has to he has to move out and go live yeah, somewhere. Yeah, that's right. So it's not as easy, right? Um, but but in equity markets more so. But but in terms of just asset allocation, I wouldn't. I mean, there's there's good reasons why. Where else would you invest money into now? Equities is still a very good proposition because if you think about the companies that you're getting exposure to, because ultimately they're the cash flows that you're getting exposure to, yeah. a lot of those companies are still doing pretty well. 
yeah, they're priced more expensive than they were sort of on average over the last, say, 100 years. But you've got to think about other things that are going in the world, like where the interest rates are, for example. Mm. That's, a, that's a big factor. Mm. Uh, just from a valuation standpoint, um, also just, just the motivations and, and how long you're investing for. So those things come into play as well. I think, I think it's... Um, I don't know if there'll be this bull market will continue, but but yeah, I don't see any any kind of any alarm bells. So when you, when you say they're more violent, do do you, do you also believe that they will be more frequent as well? That I don't know. That I don't know. It just mm. depends on the kind of the, the news flow um, that's coming in. Yeah. yeah. Could, could we've, we? We've had a fair few. We've had a fair few. Like if you go back, think about sort of you know like from the GFC, we've had a fair few violent swings. It doesn't. Yeah, seem we have. Like like the the obviously the coronavirus was the the most violent of them all because you had a forty percent fall in markets in three weeks, um, but we've had many like we've had you know the Greeks the Greece stuff out of the GFC we have the China stuff we had Trump yeah uh, we had a lot of big swings a lot of days where markets was you know going up and down. why do you think investors forget so quickly about that? It's it, I don't think they do it's it, the, the the prices, what, what causes prices to change is just that marginal dollar. It's not all investors. Like think about the price. If, if one, you can have, if one, if you buy one share of Apple at a price that is, you know, much higher than where it's at now, the price is going to move towards the price you're going to pay for that one share. Forget the other, you know, 3 million shares that are outstanding. That one share is going to make an impact. So I think your, your average investor, most investors are not doing much at all as they should be. Right, they've got their strategy. They're they're exposed and they want to maintain that. It's that it's that marginal investor that are really swinging prices about, and I think that's why. And that mm. marginal investor is the one who's going to say, "Oh, look, I don't care if I sell it at thirty percent less than what it was yesterday because I've made three hundred. Mm. They're the people making those decisions. They're the people that are going to move those prices. And so, with more more and more more and more of those types of investors now participating in the market, what role do you think active management has in people's portfolios today? Because certainly. You know, people trading GameStop and and whatnot. Like, do you think that their position would be? Why would I give my money to an active manager when I can go and buy and sell the stocks myself, and I'm making money off it anyway? Yeah, look, I think active management. There's 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 a place for active management. What do you think that place is? They they you know they they're very smart, very educated, uh, you know, investors, um, and and they. They have an opinion. The opinion, they, they think that these companies are worth something different to the market price. And they go out there and do a lot of work to, to make sure that that opinion is uh, well supported. And they go and act on that opinion through you know, buying or selling. Um, I think that's fine. Um, on average, that cohort of investors has underperformed index on average, but there has been some that have done well. Um, we're an active investor, mm. right? We're just systematic in the way we do sure. it. Um, and, and we don't approach markets thinking that the price is wrong. We approach thinking that let's let's use that to position our portfolios towards the characteristics that we're after. Um, that's that's worked well. Um, you know, the other thing with active investors is that subjectivity that they that, and that 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 you know, which is which a lot of people are really attracted to, and and that's fine. Like if you really have belief in that person. Like it's no different to, to investing in a particular share because you believe the CEO is, sure. is a very capable person who's going to do really really good things with that company. So people have that same um, mentality investing in an active manager. That's fine. Yeah. One of the things we talked a little bit about before was um, what happened to bonds at the beginning of the year, what stocks did, et cetera. 
Um, what with, with what's going on in interest rates, or what kind of did happen? It's it's sort of flattened out a little bit now. What impact do you think that's having on on stocks and cash flow, discounted cash flows, um, people's nervousness generally around rising of interest rates and things like that? What what impact has interest rates had on stocks, and what do you, what impact do you think it'll continue to have? Yeah, I think I think, and, and that's the way we approach uh, kind of stocks and, and expected returns. We think about that that valuation equation, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, you can have a high expected return security because you think the cash flows are going to be stronger than what the market currently is pricing in or because you think the expected return is going to be, the discount rate is going to be um, higher, right? So, yeah, so with, right. with the bond bond rates being where they are now, and they've, they've gone up a lot, right, the last six months. It's been a huge rise of bonds. But they're still at levels that are lower than they were pre-COVID. That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the thing that people don't... Everyone's very, you know, we, we go on vaccination, we go to this back to kind of normal, this this whole um, uh, theory around that. And then that's really what's and this inflation that's coming in as a result of that. Yeah. That's why the bond yields have gone up so rare. And it's been a rapid rise in bond yields for sure. But to levels that were still lower than they were pre-COVID. And if you, if you, if you remember pre-COVID, we went through, we had five, six years of economy doing really well. And, you know, the U.S. was close to full employment, Trump, you know, the equity markets go, everyone's making money. Um, and, and yet the world could not find inflation. Yeah. Right. They would, you know, because technology is very deflationary and, and it's very tough. So, yeah, I don't know. These concerns around inflation personally, for me, they're not really, um, I'm not that concerned. I think, I think, I think they've tried. They were trying really hard pre-COVID. They couldn't find it. I don't see how it's going to change now. Obviously, inflation has gone so much during COVID that it's going to bounce. Back. Sure, we're going to see some big numbers in the medium term, but longer term, uh, I don't think those bond yields are going to. Yeah, I think further. context and perspective is really important. Yeah. Um, what needs to happen for inflation to continue? Is it is it is it wage growth that needs needs to remain consistent for inflation to have some support levels? Yeah, look, you can really. I mean, we don't. That, I mean, that's what active managers do, right? They kind of they are in the position where they can really dig underneath that inflation print and what's underlying it. Yeah. And it's things like um, how much do you pay for petrol, so like oil prices, your rent is a big part of your inflation number, for example. You know, your grocery basket, the price of that is a really big part of your inflation number. What you pay in your, for your utilities is a big price of that. And I don't really see those things going up too much. Um, you know, obviously oil prices are much higher now. Rents are a bit, are a bit um, you know, nowhere near as high as that. Yeah. So there's there's so many things that are playing there, but, but it's gone very low and now it's bounced back and the world's a little bit concerned that vaccines and the world's coming back to normal everyone's going out there and travel again and spend money but um yeah i think i think they forget very quickly that we've had good five seven years of that pre-covid and we didn't have inflation so i'm not sure what what um how how it's going to be different going forward yeah time will tell on that one yeah Uh, we talked about bonds before and you, you said bonds haven't bonds aren't getting as much credit relative to stocks when, when you look at different types of portfolios, and we, we've crunched a lot of numbers from yeah. 50-50 portfolios, 60-40, 70-30, all the way up to 100-0 portfolios. Yeah. And when you look at some of the returns on these portfolios long run, I'm talking 10, 15, 20 years, the average long-term return is very similar yeah. to that of a 50-50 portfolio oh, really? to that of a 100-0 portfolio. And I think part of the reason has to do with the fact that bonds have been on a pretty 
pretty big bull run over the last 20, 30 years. And so, you know, when, when, when we talk to investors, you know, they're like, well, why would I invest in 100 zero when I can invest in a 50-50, less risk, but I can get as much return? Yeah. What do you think, what's your take on that now yeah. based on where interest rates are at 1.5% yeah. now going forward and that mix between bonds and stocks? Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate your conundrum because it's one of the one of the most difficult things to, um, I think, articulate with advisors that we work and their investors is that, that, whole, um, that whole situation of, Bond returns have been very similar to stock returns. That's right. Like bond, if you look at bond returns over the last 20 years, you're getting sort of 6%. Correct. Um, with next to no volatility. So it's been like an information ratio of two. Incredible investment. I mean, if you had the foresight and you can leverage that up, you'll be... What's an uh, information ratio? Just maybe for the benefit just, of... Sorry. Uh, it's just the, the level, the risk that you... Basically, risk divided by uh, volatility. Right. Right. So it's... And big, so it's two, a good number or a bad number? It's an amazing number. Like right. If you can... If as an active equity manager, if you can get to somewhere close to 0.4, you're doing a very good job. Right, so two's insane. Two's insane. Right. Yeah, yeah. so if you had the foresight, um, you, you, would have, you would have been a very wealthy person. Um, so, but but what, but yeah, that's, that's why they're looking at the 50-50 portfolio and it's very similar number to like a 100-0 portfolio, but it's all about what happens going forward. Yeah. Right, and as we just spoke, the combination of equity and bonds is really powerful. Right. Expected return for bonds are obviously much lower um, going forward. So, um, but you will get that protection, right? So, so if you if you are somewhat risk averse, like if you're you know close to your retirement, if if you do need that income, you don't want to jeopardize your lifestyle. Um, you still, you should still follow those those kind of uh, those rules and go into a 50-50 or a thirty seventy sure. because bonds will. And it's also, but it's, but your bond allocation is also important. Remember, when you get to a portfolio where majority of your portfolio is in fixed income or some defensive asset, the makeup of that defensive asset becomes a lot more important. What do you mean by that? So, for example, if you're in a 70-30, 70 equity, 30 bonds, the bond peaks, uh, you may as well go, you may as well go out and get the return in that bond fee as much as you can. Don't worry about the volatility of that bond piece because the volatility will be dictated by the 70% that you've got in equity. So are you saying just go all out guns blazing on the 30% allocation and just risk the port, risk that allocation up? Correct. So set up that portfolio to earn as much credit and as much term premium as possible. It's going to be more volatile than your average bond portfolio, but that's okay because the volatility of that is going to be meaningless compared to the 70% that right. compared to the volatility you're going to get from equities. As you move down that spectrum towards a 50-50 or a 30-70, where all of a sudden bonds are now 50-70% of your return, you need to think a lot about the volatility of that bond piece. Mm. You, need to, you need to control, do do what you need to do to make sure that you're bringing that exposure to credit, bringing that exposure to longer-term bonds, to interest rate risk, and make sure that, that that exposure is in line with your overall objective. So what you're saying is as you move up the risk spectrum, naturally your allocation to bonds will will get smaller. Correct. And what you're saying is with that smaller allocation, go higher on the risk curve Correct. in bonds. Within bonds. But more, more conservative your portfolio is, you need to think about a conservative allocation Bond within allocation. bonds Correct. and potentially also some smaller allocations to higher risky or riskier bonds within the bond portfolio. Exactly right. So right. if you look at how we, we're, we've got balanced funds that we manage, if you look at like a 30-70... 30 equity, 70 bond 
versus 70-30. The 70-30, the, the bond piece there is, is in our highest octane portfolio, yeah. our global bond trust. Big exposure to long-term long-term bonds and credit. The 30-70, it's much shorter in duration. Yeah. It's much smaller credit exposure. So for that reason, yeah. you use, you use the, the growth part of your portfolio is the growth part, that's the engine. You need to use bonds to make sure that the volatility of the overall portfolio is in line with your risk profile. It, that's a really interesting um, topic because I think a lot of investors feel as though I've got cash, cash is not working for me, yeah. so we've got to go to stocks. And, and, and they've just jumped this huge river yeah. of opportunity where you can – you don't have to take that risk. Yeah. You can invest in – almost this uh, bond ladder, if you like, from really low, conservative, low returning, but very stable, yeah. to high returning, high volatile securities. Yeah. That, that is, there, there is that universe there. But I think from what you're yeah. talking about and, and certainly what, what we've seen, most people just want to jump from cash to yeah. stocks. Yeah. And, and potentially that's what's happening. That's why we're seeing cash allocation so low and stock allocation so high. And it's crazy that they want to do that, given that the bond have given you 6% return over the last 20 years. Why wouldn't you want to capture some of that, right? With a very, in a very low Well, going forward, it's, it may be unlikely that you're going to but get the 6% per annum. But there's still a spectrum between that, right? It might not be six, it could be, it could be three, it could sure. be two, but in a way that protects your capital, in a way that's in line with your risk profile. Yeah, 100%. That's a really important 100%. thing to yeah. maintain exposure. How, how much... How much value do, maybe not Dimensional, but Slava personally puts on the Robert Schiller's cyclically price adjusted earnings ratio? So the CAPE ratio, yeah. how much value do you place on that? Do you ignore it? We, well, we don't, we don't ignore anything. Um, our, our, our kind of view on value is that it's the price right? that, that's the real hero. So anything, a low relative price security is going to have a high expected return. What you divide price by, or how you structure that metric, which is you know the Cape metric, is 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 a secondary. It's more of an implementation consideration for us, right? So, if you look historically, if you look at the research, price to earnings, price to cash, price to sales, Cape, any of these metrics, they've all delivered you the value premium. If you form portfolios of cheap securities on those metrics, yep. that portfolio would have outperformed. That's but it's not it's not only just over the next twelve months. In fact, that the the reliability that's really low. You got to start pushing five, seven, ten years. Correct. That's when yeah. that. But because it's volatile, right? Equity markets yeah. volatile. You've 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 earned a return. So U.S. markets go back to nineteen twenty-eight. That's close to hundred years now. And the return the, the return that those markets have generated for investors is about nine percent per annum, mm. which is really strong, right? But the volatility around that is huge as well. You mm. can still. You, there is a 17% chance you will earn a negative equity premium um, over a 10-year period. 17%. So it's not – it's not. the odds are very much in your favour. Less than one in five. 83%. Yeah. But it's still 17%. It's still meaningful. Right? Sure. So you can go through a 10-year period with equity markets giving you a negative return or a, a return less than cash. Right? So it's possible. Equity markets are very volatile. You need, you need, that, you need that time. Um, and, and, the same, and the premiums, it's the same for the premiums as well. Cape ratio is sitting at around 33.6, the second highest since 1965. And the only time we saw it at this point was during the tech wreck. So we're, we're, we're close to almost two standard deviations yeah, above. Yeah. Well, it's, no, it's the same as those spreads that you were looking at, right? It's the same. It's exactly the same thing. We are in value versus growth. Um, we, are, we are in a, a place now where things are looking quite even with the even with the last rebound it's still looking very stretchy i mean we're nowhere near out of the woods 
Yeah. If you look at our tenure numbers, they're still they're still we're still underperforming in many of our portfolios by a small amount, but unfortunately we are. Yeah. Do you know we're from um, 2009 to to 2020? Uh, we are on track to literally mirror the GFC bottom. Oh yeah. <laughs> the the red line is the GFC bottom oh, right, to okay. uh, I think uh, two years following the GFC bottom. That's COVID bottom to uh, where we are today. You love your charts, Rob. Love the charts, <laughs> Slava. Um, so I'm going to ask you your opinion before we before we wrap up. That's the first one, and second one is probably too early to tell. But the blue line is the COVID-19 uh, recovery. Yeah. The, the red line is the Spanish flu in the roaring 20s. And we've got the Asian flu just for perspective on that green line. Are we entering <laughs> Slava, a roaring 20s of the 20th century? <laughs> yes keep, or no? You keep asking me, you keep asking me to forecast things. You know, that's not <laughs> I know it's not your DNA, but, no. but take the cape off and uh, what do you reckon? I don't know, Rob. It's it's uh, honestly it's not it's not about the cape. I, I I just haven't spent any time thinking about what's what's going to happen you know, too far in the future. You know we 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 are very busy. We we just want to make sure that um, you know in these times where there is turbulence and there are many decisions that our clients have to make that we're there for them, and, and that's just not picking up the phone and talking to them about what they should do. Or it's also. Um, you know, uh, giving them the service that they're after. So making sure they've got all the information they have you know, when they go to their clients and they're in a really, really strong position to do that. Um, Maybe they need to look at some of these charts. But, but like, you know, what, what there is, there is an enormous, and you probably know this better than I, there's so many cases where you can demonstrate that staying disciplined, staying on course, being really diligent, and, and, and again, looking beyond what's just happening today, has, has, has been a really important decision. 100%, absolutely. And, and, and I'm showing you these things. Um, one, I'm really curious about what you think, but I also yeah. think it's really important for long-term investors to understand and see over long periods of time, if you do ignore the noise, you are rewarded over, over long periods of time. And it may not be, you know, a 500% return like we had in the roaring 20s, but history says that if you're holding securities and uh, risky assets yeah. uh, for a 10-plus year period... The odds are pretty damn high for you to make money on that. What that what that return is, no one knows. No one knows. Yeah. But the probability of you making money on that is very it's very high. It's very very high. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm asking you these things because when we spoke last time, I asked you, Slava, that we're sitting here in 2023. I said, "What was the biggest? What is the biggest regret investors will have?" Do you know what your response was? Do you remember? What was it? You said not doubling down on value. <laughs> So you're one from one. You're 100% on the forecasts. So I'm going to ask you this one last time before we wrap up. We're sitting here in 2024. We're again three years ahead. What is investors' biggest regret right now? Not maintaining their allocation to fixed income. I like it. Slava, uh, this is awesome, man. I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, thanks again for joining me today. No, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Let's do this again. 100%. Yeah.